into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit, because you know what we say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm your friendly neighborhood podcaster and seminarian, Samson Kovach, coming back to you with another edition of The Theology Pit. And this one will be the last in our little series here we've done on my uh, translation of Galatians 15 through 21. We're up to verse 21. And so I'm going to talk about uh, why I translated it the way that I did uh, with a conclusion and then a com- kind of a conclusion on the whole thing here. So verse 21 of chapter 2 in Galatians, I've translated as, I do not reject the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died unnecessarily. So, verse 21 is the end of a pericope, and that's just a fancy word for a unit of thought. And with Paul making a summary statement against the charge that is at the heart of his accusers, the implicit charge is that by Paul denying aspects of the law, he also denies the grace of God. DeBoer observes that in verse 21a, Paul refers back to his testimony in 115 that God called him through his grace. Paul is saying, as a reminder to his objectors, that he has been called by God's grace without doing any of the works of the law. Lewis Martin writes, It is not surprising that the teachers should have charged Paul with nullifying God's grace, for they almost certainly equated that grace with the law. God's gracious gift par excellence. And Hayes agrees with Martin in in this thought and adds, unspoken but strongly implied is the counter accusation. It is you who nullify the grace of God by acting as though Christ's death was of no importance. The central message is that Paul is summarizing in verse 21 is that um, adding anything to Christ's faithful death is to dilute it as superfluous. So, in a contrasting look here, uh, Paul is finally contrasting grace, the grace of God, for righteousness through Christ as opposed to the law. It is either the law or Christ. If the law can make one righteous, then Christ's death cannot matter. And if Christ's death makes one righteous, then the law cannot matter. The finality of Paul's understanding is, where does your faith reside? Does it reside in the law, which cannot justify it, or in Christ who can? Schreiner writes that Paul has said, either Peter renounces the need to observe the food laws, or he renounces the cross. There is no middle way. John Calvin writes of those in his day mixing grace and works. They think that they have a fine reply, which their sophists have furnished them with, that Christ merited for us the uh, grace merited for us the first grace, that is, opportunity for meriting, and that the merit of his death concurs with the satisfactions of works for the daily pardon of sins. Gentiles were in danger of falling into the same mindset as the Judaizers. Paul made it clear to both groups that any works added nullify Christ's death. In opposition to them, 
Calvin writes of Paul, he argues that if righteousness is by the law, Christ died in vain, and therefore he does not allow one drop of righteousness righteousness to works. Hendrickson understands Paul as making a very black and white statement that a definite choice must be made, namely, between salvation by grace and salvation by works or by law works, by Christ or by self. Now, F.F. Bruce thinks that Paul is responding to the accusation that his gospel is leading to misuse, um, or the misuse of grace, which would nullify it in two ways. Bruce writes, by receiving it, then going on as though it made no difference by continuing to live under the law, and the other, by receiving it and then going on as though it made no difference by continuing to sin that grace may abound, Romans 6.1. So, having faith in Christ means a change has taken place. Riken uh, states that justifying faith is what gets us into Christ, and when we are in Christ, we become new people. Either salvation comes through the finished work of Christ, or it comes through human effort, but not both. Martin Luther maintains that sin is commonly reigneth, he says, uh, for whosoever seeketh righteousness with Christ, either by works, merits, satisfactions, afflictions, or by the law, rejecteth the grace of God and despiseth the death of Christ, whatsoever he protesteth with his mouth to the contrary. You gotta love that old English version of uh, Martin Luther there. So, my summary of this is that both these views agree on the general meaning of this last verse and the implications. Martura highlights that the verb atheto, saying it, um, is also employed in 315, also nullifies a legally ratified will. Um, Paul here, Paul uses the word in reference to God's grace. I chose the word reject for atheto um, to express the mutual charges between Paul and his accusers. Longnecker suggests that this word carries with it strong legal overtones, but I want to emphasize the idea that it's not just in the legal arena that Paul is thinking. If verses 15 through 21 uh, were only in the related context of the law, uh, choosing a legal term like nullify would suffice. I believe Paul intends verses 20 and 21 to have a broader implication that includes the law and extends to those who have little concept of what the law entails. Legal language exists in these verses, but the translation should not reflect a law negation as the only intent. Verse 21 is um, condensing this pericope by reformulating it. Longnecker explains the construction of um, this section with, with clarity. The post-positive four introduces an explanatory sentence in support of Paul's statement of denial. The protasis of the sentence is in the form of a first-class condition, which linguistically assumes the truth of the statement. Paul, however, obviously sees such a supposition as false. As he clearly says in verse 16 above, 
So the form of the sentence, like that of verse 18 above, must be because Paul is here paraphrasing his opponent's theology, which claimed such a proposition to be true. The phrase through the law is to be equated with the works of the law in verses 16 and 17, which are in opposition to the faith or faithfulness of Christ. In a similar view of this sentence construction, Martin writes, the sentence consists of a conditional clause, um, A, without the verb, and a simple conclusion, the uh, inferential particle ara with an aorist verb thus giving no syntactical indication that Paul considers the condition to be contrary to the fact. Paul does not rest with our justification on the faith of Christ as apart from his death on the cross. It is a completed continuing action that supports the use of faithfulness in verse 20 and faith in of in verse 16 as the location of our justification. If we say that we are justified by Christ's faith as an abstract concept, then there would be no need for the cross. If we say that we are justified by Christ's faithfulness, then there would be no need for a fully human representation. Christ's death is not unnecessary. On the contrary, the cross is is the central evidence that it is, in fact, necessary. So, how the word um, pistis or faith functions in the genitive form has a significant impact on translation and theology. Uh, much has been covered in these podcasts uh, for the reasoning behind the evidence in utilizing either the subjective or objective genitive of the reading pistis, which would be faith of, would be the subjective, or faith in would be the objective. So, before we continue looking at the meaning and syntax of pistis, I would like to note that adherence to one or the other is not a vote cast for the negation of the opposite. Both understandings within this debate would concede that, one, Jesus Christ has faith. Two, Jesus Christ is faithful. Three, believers have faith in Jesus Christ. And four, the Bible supports all three of these truths. Therefore, the matter at hand is a question of when we are to express any of these views in translation, when grammatically all are possible. Uh, Not to say that in every instance each possibility is equal, but that each is allowed. So context should dictate. Now, pistis can be understood with uh, consistency and awareness of obligation to others, like faithfulness or fidelity. Um, It could could be of God, God's faithfulness or fidelity, or with focus on something indicating that one has the right to expect that a reputation for consistency will be honored. So, like a promise, guarantee, a pledge. Or it can be a belief or confidence invoked by another's reputation for trustworthiness. Uh, In the New Testament, with, uh, with focus, whether explicit or implicit, on God or Christ for aid or salvation, faith, trust, confidence. Um, You can have this faith, trust, or confidence either in God or of confidence that takes place in association with Jesus or as believing response to divine outreach without specific reference to God or Christ. 
all of these are possible. So we really have to pay attention to context to understand uh, how we should translate this word. Within the discussion surrounding the topic is the idea of settled scholarship, okay? And um, those on the objective side consider this topic to be a non-issue, while those on the subjective side have questioned the lack of scholarly consensus. Now, Bruce McCormick writes that the subjective genitive is simply too controversial to obtain ecclesiastical standing. It is an interesting proposal, but nothing more. While Dan Wallace's work on the New English translation of the Bible uh, decided in favor of faithfulness and writing to the uh, Society of Biblical Literature, their SBL annual meeting in um, November of 2000, he said this, In the first instance, the most significant departure from the net or from and that means New English translation, from other English translations is undoubtedly the translation of the Pauline expression, uh, Pistis Jesu Christo. Uh, a natural rendering in, say, Romans uh, 3.22, by faith of Jesus Christ, that's the King James wording, is virtually nonsensical. Uh, because of this, modern English translations could not be ambivalent here. A choice had to be made. Should the genitive Christuo... Um, be regarded as objective or subjective. Virtually all modern English translations regard it as an objective genitive, both in Romans 3.22 and the other Pauline texts, faith in Jesus Christ. This is so in spite of an increasing number of scholars who, in the past few decades, have argued for a subjective genitive, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. This construction and its use in Romans 3.22 illustrates the need of both a completely new English translation and one that does not hide the tensions of biblical scholarship from the lay reader. Now, in 1975, when C.E.B. Cranfield's first volume of his ICC commentary on Romans was published, he could speak of the subjective genitive view of Pistis Christu in Romans 3.22 as, quote, altogether unconvincing without giving much support for this conclusion, and citing only an early articulation of the subjective view written in 1891. The NIV New Testament had appeared two years earlier than Cranfield's commentary, but in recent years, the subjective view has gained a greater hearing, although it still finds almost no place in English translations or alternate renderings in the margins. The state of flux that surrounds uh, Pistis Christu put the editors in a, in a quandary. The first translators of the New English translation of Romans, in fact, rendered this as faith in Christ. The editors were split. Though leaning slightly towards the subjective view, we decided to consult New Testament scholars in the United States, England, Canada, and Australia to find out what the climate was in their circles. And we're going to find out what that climate is right after this message. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com Thanks again. Now back to the show. So, 
It, it continues. Dan Walls continues here. He says, our concern was not so much to solve this uh, crux of interpretative problem, but to sense where New Testament scholarship was heading on this matter. The New English translation is not a market-driven translation, but it is intended to reflect the best current biblical scholarship. In this case, a decision was uh, by no means easy. In the end, we opted for the faithfulness of Christ. And some of the English Bibles that we have, um, in the way that they translate Galatians 2.16 as either faith or faithfulness of Christ, um, here are some of them, and I'm going to give you, if you go to Bible Gateway and you look at the English translations and you bring up Galatians 2.16 and you scroll through them or just, you know, kind of click through the different translations, what you're going to see is that especially if you look at the footnotes, uh, the footnotes means that, you know, the minority of the translators working on that particular translation voted in, in favor of this. But if you add in, um, the, uh, majority of English translations and then the minority, you get like somewhere around like 46, 48% of English translations go for faith or faithfulness of Christ. So here are the ones that are definite, that, that have them. And then I'll, I'll read some of the ones that do have the um, footnote that allow for faith of Christ. Okay. So all of these are faith of Christ. All right. The 21st century King James Version, the blue, red, and gold Bible, common English Bible, complete Jewish Bible, Darby translation, Dewey Ramus 1899 American edition. And the Dewey Ramus Bible was a uh, translation from the Latin Vulgate. Um, The 1599 Geneva Bible, the International Standard Version, the Jubilee Bible 2000, King James Version, the authorized King James Version, the New English Translation of the Bible, the Matthew Bible, New Testament for Everyone, the Passion Translation, the Voice, Wycliffe Bible, and Young's Literal Translation. Now, here are the translations where if you look at the footnote, you're able to see it. Um, The easy-to-read version, Expanded Bible, Lexingham English Bible, New Revised Standard Version, New Revised Standard Version Anglicanized, New Revised Standard Version Anglicanized Catholic Edition, New Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition, Uh, the New International, some New International Versions, not all of them, but some New International Versions have them, and the Tree of Life Version. Um, Another problem is how to translate Pistis with our lack of understanding in relating the full nuance of a concept that exists both inside and outside of a Western mindset. Ian Wallace, writing on the Jewish idea of faith, comments that, quote, the definition of faith was conceived as a reactive process of reflection upon events and characters in Jewish history, rather than as a proactive construction of belief patterns dependent upon more philosophical or abstract thinking. Wallace then brings this understanding into first century ideas. Thus, together with uh, formal, with more formal declarations of belief and conduct, the substance, 
of faith within Jewish traditions prior to and around the time of the New Testament is developed primarily in terms of people and situations rather than abstract propositions. Wallace concludes his section with an apocalyptic understanding of Jewish thought. Reflecting on the lexical stock of Amen and Pistuo, Wallace writes, it's eschatological associations and function with reference to the establishing of God's kingdom or covenant demonstrate that faith had become an essential element within Jewish expectation and understanding of salvation. One aspect of this was the belief that God's Messiah would himself be a man of faith. So, the historical support indicates that Paul would have conveyed that faith should be understood and best articulated through a three chord, a threefold chord meaning in Christ. Uh, Henrik uh, Jungmann, that's this last name is, is spelled L J U N G M A N. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. In his book, uh, Pistis, a study of his presuppositions and its meaning in Pauline use, writes of, quote, the importance of using the biblical and rabbinic background appropriately in order to get, grasp the true significance of Pistis in Paul. Jungman also finds Paul's central understanding of faith is in Christ's resurrection, a thought shared by those on both sides of the genitive issue. Jungman concludes, uh, raising the raising of Christ who died for our sins means the salvation of his people. This salvation is God's righteousness. God's righteousness means that God obtains the right of the oppressed, i.e. justifies. Jungman connects Paul's thought process with the Old Testament passage from Habakkuk 2.4. Pistis from man's side, Jungman writes, corresponds to the salvation through the Son because of God's faithfulness. This is the origin of the righteous people. To the salvation which has thus come about, the righteousness corresponds the expression of, well, it's... um, I guess I could read it here. High de diakos kai pestuos, which is basically, you know, but, uh, you know, but the righteousness uh, uh, in faith, um, from faith, characterizing the righteous people who shall live. There's very strong there's very strong support for the incorporation of the subjective genitive into our translation and our soteriology. Um. So, the biggest problem that I see with a lot of other um, translations is that, uh, and, and theologies, is that they are dictated by their traditions. And um, not only Roman Catholicism, but uh, the, the Reformed tradition, the Anglican tradition, Lutheran tradition, they all have their own uh, pet ideas. And the doctrine of justification by faith alone is one of those, that it is in faith that you are justified. You justify by your faith in Christ. And that stress, and the stress is on the volunteerism of what you do. And because of this, um, you know, it, that, that came about as, as I've been able to see because of the strong influence that um, Thomas Aquinas had and the Middle Ages in understanding that Jesus didn't have faith. They would say that Jesus didn't have faith. You can find that in Aquinas's Summa Theologica. Uh, and 
in, in the Council of Trent, that is the philosopher and theologian that all Catholics are to look towards. That's um, the statement that uh, that came from them, in, in in a sense, to unify. And the Jesuits had a hand in in pushing a militant adherence um, to what the Church says. But that's the the influence of uh, translative understanding that the reformers were in. And even if they were using translations that said faith of Christ, usually their translations danced around it. They didn't, you know, they, they looked at it to assume it was either like a faith that you possessed or um, it should be just understood as faith in Christ. So you can understand when um, you know, Pentecostals say, yes, I have the faith of Christ and that's why I can do or say anything. I can call things into existence, all those things, because it is by that faith that they have that then they possess and they can do and say whatever they want, including a volunteerism of, I use that faith in order to justify uh, or to be justified by God, where the Catholic understanding would be more, no, God has made an agreement with humanity that he will give you this faith. And he, by you believing, he then honors that. Um, and that would be much more of like uh, Anglican, Anglo-Catholic, Arminian uh, approach, but it's within the sphere of um, Roman Catholicism and Roman Catholic uh, thought and philosophy, even though they would have a gratia infusa and and they just have like a, a different understanding of what justification is, that it's, it's progressive, it's not forensic, it's not declared. Um, but so um, the issue at hand for translating Galatians 2, 15 through 21 is not without its problems. Most notably, the largest problem I found uh, among the translators and scholars um, on the objective genitive side was a reluctance towards the subjective genitive view for fear it would force all renderings of pistis as the faith of something. Uh, there is a theological loss and a shift in one's soteriology that will occur if this objective genitive uh, paradigm is disrupted. On the other hand, the subjective genitive um, needs to further understand the implications between faith of and faithfulness of to make it more uh, a more coherent argument. Um, and I mean, that's why I you know, um, went to such great lengths when I was going through um, verses 16 and, and 20. So, if we translate in a vacuum, either grammatically, culturally, or theologically, we will miss the full textured ri richness of a concept that cannot be grasped by a single English word or concept. Now, I've attempted to show through my translation the explanations coupled with the surrounding explanations that a threefold cord of Christ's faith or faithfulness with our faith is the best way to translate this passage. And without the background of other Pauline texts or what's called the Deutero-Pauline texts, Jewish concepts of faith and salvation, uh, the scriptures as a whole, and the promptings of the Holy Spirit in Semper Reformanda or always reforming, uh, we will never come closer to understanding this great mystery of justification. Another thing that I've come across uh, since I've done this study and presenting is building off of that chiastic structure in uh, verse uh, 16 that we talked about. And the same chiastic structure does seem to be in place in um, the book of Romans, looking at um, 
chapter uh, chapter three, starting in chapter three, and going through um, chapter four, verse twenty five, and um, the way it, it it seems to be set up is that you know with a chiasm, whatever's in the middle, that that is the you know the pinnacle of what's trying to be shown within the encompassing outlying sections. So the outlying sections are the righteousness of God and the faithfulness of Christ manifested. And we find that in verses or in chapter three of Romans verses 21 through 26 and um, chapter four verses 24 through 25. in in between, we have a parenthetical statement for the benefit of everyone, then the Abraham story contrasting the law and faith, um, then another parenthetical statement summarizing three realities, belief, faith, the belief or faith, sinlessness, and being made righteous or righteous. Um, sinlessness and law come next in a parenthetical statement, and then you get Abraham and his offspring with the seal of having been righteous by faith. Faith is the evidence that this stuff has taken place. And then it just works its way backwards, um, starting from uh, chapter 4, verse 13 through 15, back to 25. Yes, it talks about sinlessness in the, you know, in the law, Abraham's story, contrasting law and faith, another parenthetical statement of the three realities, belief, um, life and the dead, let sinlessness declared, and uh, one being made righteous. And then Abraham's story continues as evidence, a parenthetical statement of benefit to all, and it finishes up again with the righteousness of God and the faith faithfulness of Christ manifested. So it's not just in this area in Galatians where this comes from. We, we're seeing this throughout uh, Pauline writing and a big part of it where he's expanded this section in Romans, you can take a look at for yourself. It's pretty interesting. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to The Theology Pit. If you get a chance, um, you know, send me an email, samson at samsonstick.com. Check us out at samsonstick.com. And you can find us also at uh, Facebook, you know, just look for the theology pit. It's kind of all over the place. And now it is definitely time to close down the pit. Thank you.